the dance was had, as it is every time I hear that music. I hope that makes you smile, Justin, because every time it comes on, I move. So thank you for that stretch. Here we are, episode 23. I am still really, really a little bit of a fanboy for our last episode. For those of you who haven't heard it yet, I hope you go back. I want to apologize. I don't think I was really on my game because I had that little fanboy thing going, but our previous episode 22 was with Mr. Ed Rosenthal, and he was very generous with giving us his time to talk about uh, things within the cannabis industry, um, definitely with a strong pull towards the, the society and the social aspect of it. So again, to Mr. Rosenthal, I thank him. And I think I'm finally down from that cloud nine, maybe cloud eight. Um, so I am looking out the window of our production studio tonight. It is snowing. Uh, looks like inch to two inches maybe tonight. The guy across the street has snowblowed his driveway. And now again, you can't see it just to put it in perspective for you. So it's a glorious day here in Rochester, New York. Today, we have a very cool guest who is one of the most educated people, um, an attorney uh, in from the state that is absolutely a wealth of knowledge in the cannabis industry. So I'm very excited to have her on. But before we get there, I want to tell everybody about a new addition to my family, which I'm excited about. And I will be documenting uh, my experience with my new member of the family through YouTube, uh, through my Brian Lane Ski videos. But I picked up a rescue Husky Pit Mix on Thursday, last, last a week ago, and I'm very excited. He uh, was found with his father on East Avenue in Rochester, New York. His father is a purebred husky, and the son, we believe the mother's a pit bull, but we haven't gotten definitive confirmation on that, but from everything I see, it looks like a pit, and he is absolutely the biggest lover boy ever, um, so I was told when I got him that he pulls out a leash He's, he's, he's definitely smart and pays attention, um, but he doesn't really socialize well with other dogs, which I've had experience with, and, uh, and he likes little rodents, definitely prey-driven, but uh, at the very least, I was, had a, a dream a couple of weeks ago about getting a dog, and I had previously had a dog, so I'm, I'm a previous dog owner. I owned a chocolate lab named Beauregard Lane. Uh, he ended up dying. I put him down of cancer eventually. But he was a trail dog uh, for me, an outdoors dog with me, until his whining became uh, on a leash, became so bad he got grounded. Um, so my goal was to find a new trail dog um, when the dream came to me. And I definitely am an adverse to long hair and cleaning up hair regularly in my household. Uh, so I did some research on the top breeds of trail dogs. As an outdoorsman and someone who uses cannabis when I'm in the outdoors, I definitely want the kind of dog that fits my lifestyle. So I researched top breeds. Terrier popped up. Uh, Ridgeback popped up. The Rhodesian Ridgebacks. Uh, Labradors. Golden Retrievers. Uh, Huskies. All on that list. Uh, you know, um, some others as well. But those were the five that I, that I said, hmm, those could be five that I would gravitate to. Well, Bo is a chocolate lab, so I've had my experience with labs and food-driven dogs. So uh, Golden Retrievers, we had a poor experience. A friend of mine had a Golden Retriever. We brought on a trip with us once and, and basically quit on us. Um, and then he ended up dying early in his life, so I put ruled them out. Uh, the Ridgebacks, I do have a friend of mine that uh, raises and trains Ridgebacks, Christine Cohn. She's a very good friend of mine. Uh, at least I hope she considers that reciprocal. Um, but... She, has, she also braids dogs for some of the big shows, Westminster, etc. 
And uh, so I reached out to her. And in the time I was reaching out to her, I stopped at a couple shelters and a picture of a dog came through my phone that made me stop in my tracks. This little brown and white, medium size, maybe 30 to 40 pounds, a uh, year old, one year old. And the picture I got was of him. He kind of looked like a fox. He's got the uh, pointy ears of the husky and the eyes of the husky with the head of the pit bull. So a little bigger head where where a husky's head tends to be a little more narrow. Excuse me. Saw the picture of him. And then, uh, so I asked, okay, that's a short haired Husky. That's kind of what I'm looking for. So I asked for two more pictures and I got pictures of him and his father together and just saw the sweetness between the two of them. And so the people that, um, the dogs ran from were called the owners picked up the, the Husky father, but said they couldn't, uh, they couldn't take the, they couldn't take Bernie. Bernie was too much for their household. So I happened upon the Rochester City shelter about two days after Bernie and his dad were found. I was told there was a couple, a husky found. So I reached out to Brindle Posse Rescue. That's Brindle Posse Rescue in Rochester, New York. Uh, and the people who run that happen to be old friends of my brother. I didn't realize that till later on. Uh, so went to them and asked them if they still had Bernie and I'd like to see him. And it took a few days till he got acclimated as foster house. But eventually, uh, he was delivered to me after after a little meet and greet where it seemed like him and I were both going to be good. I was very apprehensive because I assumed I was going to have a lot of heavy training. Um, but I was also very excited because I was ready for this experience and the next level with with a dog. Well, this dog is definitely imprinted on, on, my, on both me and my brother and my niece very quickly. He is a lover dog. He's still not good with other dogs. He, we had an incident with my cousin's dog that didn't go very well, but we're hoping that's an isolated incident and we can uh, break him of that. Uh, but it'll be a slow process if it takes one, two, three years to, to get him acclimated. And if he's not totally acclimated, then I will take him backcountry with me where there's not many dogs and he'll be fine. But I'm having a blast with Bernie. You can check it out at Brian Lane Ski Videos. I put a little three-minute introduction video of uh, me he, me meeting him and uh, a little things a few things we've done in the beginning uh, so you'll see some videos coming up of walks that we take and uh, different things I'm doing to train him to get ready to go to the back country to eventually be a ski dog with me uh, and, a, and a dog uh, that'll be able to bike with me so that's the goal I hope everybody's as excited as I am about it uh, so his name is Bernie you can check him out on my Facebook uh, and then just to close off before I start talking about our wonderful guest uh, I just want to remind everybody, gear is for sale at hempthletics.com. I have not done a big push for the gear yet, but, I, but I'm going to start to. Uh, I'd love to see people support the cause. Uh, like I said at the beginning, it'll help fund the podcast, and eventually it'll go to charities, which I will post on the website so everybody knows where that money goes to. Uh, hempthletics.com, sweatshirts. Uh, we have both zipper hoodies and regular hoodies. We have T-shirts, and we have 4 by 6 bumper stickers now. I uh, hope... You go on there, check out the site. Um, all the episodes are listed there as well as our affiliated links. So different companies and people that we're affiliated with and we want to support, we have on the affiliate links page. Please don't hesitate to reach out and contact us through that way or through my Facebook or through my Hempletics Instagram site. All right. So today, everybody, I am very excited to have uh, someone that I worked on a project with recently for work uh, that came out very, very successful. And I worked with her very closely. I'm sure she was annoyed more than I was uh, because she was a breath of wisdom uh, from a 
let's see, she is an attorney, so I'll just spell it out for everybody right now. And, and attorneys and me, I, I haven't always been on the same page with. I respect, respect them uh, entirely in what they do in protecting people and what they do for, to protect our rights as people. Um, but I've never always met attorneys that I've respected, if that makes sense. And this gal is phenomenal. This gal is a leader in, in many different ways in, in the industry in New York State. And I'm honored to, to have known her and have her worked with her and contributed like 10% to this project that we did together um, while she did so much good work. But I'm going to introduce everybody to someone that I've worked with closely um, since December. And her name is Sarah Payne. Hey, everybody. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. Oh, th- oh, it is my pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for taking the time. Glad to do it. So tell everybody um, uh, who you work for and, and maybe how, uh, as much as you want to tell about how you and I you know, got to know each other. Okay, sure. So I am an attorney with the Barclay Damon Law Firm. Um, we are a super regional law firm, uh, mainly in New York, but with about 13 offices across the Northeast. Um, We are a full-service firm and relatively um, recently, we formalized a cannabis practice and I am the leader of our cannabis practice. And to our law firm, a cannabis practice is a pretty broad uh, group. And um, it's uh, on the attorney and staffing side, it's um, a very multidisciplinary uh, group of folks, um, attorneys and non-attorney professionals. I have my arms around sort of all the substantive areas that touch cannabis, but then the other members of my team have very narrow expertise in specific subject matters and areas of law. For example, labor and employment and zoning and land use and um, regulatory matters and litigation and uh, you name it, cannabis touches it. In terms of uh, what cannabis practice means, in in terms of uh, the the types of matters we see, it sort of breaks down like one-third is all the people and entities who are impacted by legalization. And that could be... um, Government subdivisions like towns and villages, uh, thinking about what are they going to do with their zoning, for example, or a university, um, maybe who is trying to understand what do they need to do to comply with requirements to permit a medical marijuana user on their campus. And the federal requirement to maintain a drug-free workplace uh, to protect their federal funding to a widget manufacturer who has an employee who has a medical marijuana certification in the state of New York. And in the state of New York, if you're a medical marijuana patient, you are deemed disabled. And that comes with some pretty robust protections. And some of those 
protections include um, protections against employment discrimination. So those those are some fairly significant legal issues that we see from folks that are responding to changes in the legal environment, but that aren't participants in the cannabis industry. The other two-thirds of our cannabis practice does involve people who are participants in the cannabis industry, and those folks, generally speaking, fall into one of four categories, and and those categories are sort of as follows. Um, One is medical marijuana companies, and in New York, we do have a medical marijuana program, and it is quite small and restrictive. Um, but I represent one of the original five medical marijuana companies. Uh, we now have 10, and the program remains pretty small. That, um, by the way, by the way, I should stop you so I can pat you in the back for that, because for, for those of you who are listening, that is no small feat what Sarah talks about doing. So can you talk a little bit about that process you were involved in for people, Sarah, and what year you did that? Sure. So um, we, in New York State, um, we passed a medical marijuana law in 2014 and very expeditiously moved forward with regulations and a licensing process. And in 2015, uh, did in fact issue licenses. And so Um, I worked with one of the companies who was awarded one of those licenses from the beginning. uh, And we, you know, did everything from uh, work on the corporate structure to understand the law and the regulations and site facilities and negotiate leases and deal with capitalization and, uh, prepare the application, and um, it was a very, very intense process. It, it ended up, um, you know, filling several three-ring binders um, once the application was put together. But in the end, it, it was a successful endeavor, and um, you know, the, the company is the only remaining medical company that has not been sold and is not now owned by a company that's publicly traded in Canada. So we're, we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, you followed your, the mandate, or you followed exactly the plan that you guys laid out, and you, you successfully um, executed it. That's right. So, so there's that segment of, of clients. The other segment of, of clients um, are participants in the New York State Industrial Hemp Program, and that's actually how I had an opportunity to meet Brian. Um, he and some of his colleagues were recent applicants to New York's Industrial Hemp Program and were awarded a license to become an industrial hemp CBD processor. And so I I work with some of those folks as well. Um, The third group are are companies who are in the adult use marijuana space. And that's not yet legal in New York, but it is coming down the pike very quickly. In fact, we have some proposed legislation right now that's being considered by our legislature that is... um, on track to be included in our budget this year. So, you know, a month away from from possible 
uh, legalization in New York. And then the fourth category are people who are involved in ancillary or non-plant touching businesses. And so those are the folks who are involved in things like developing software to uh, accommodate um, cannabis company operations and landlords who rent to cannabis companies and um, uh, financial institutions who want to do business with cannabis companies and uh, equipment manufacturers who want to design and produce equipment for cannabis companies and those types of things. So that's generally what cannabis practice looks like inside uh, the private practice of law. And now, did you guys model that over another state's practice, or is this something that you collaboratively put together as a team? So that's a great question, Brian. It kind of organically came came up internally, and so we didn't model it after after any other state's format or any other law firm's model. It just happened to fit what was already going on inside of Barclay Damon. So I actually came to Barclay Damon from a much smaller law firm, a boutique law firm that worked primarily in the environmental space. And we brought over with us uh, the beginning of the cannabis practice. And once we got here and people started to get to know us a little bit better and find out, um, you know, more about what we do, and they learned that we have this medical marijuana licensee and that we had been very involved with the medical marijuana uh, law in New York and then the regulations and then the application process and that ultimately we had been successful, um, they were very interested. Some of their clients were very interested in that. And then they, you know, started talking to each other and come to find out, you know, so-and-so had a hemp client and this other person rented farmland to a hemp client and somebody else had uh, a bank that wanted to do business with a marijuana client. And it just sort of came to be that we had more interest in cannabis than the firm knew. And when we sat down and talked about all of these things, um, it, it made sense to create a practice designed to accommodate cannabis in an intelligent way because it's a very, very different type of practice than conventional practices like mergers and acquisitions or labor and employment, like no offense, but kind of a snooze fest sometimes. Cannabis touches almost everything, and it's very, very complicated, um, legally speaking, because it's on the marijuana side, at least, still illegal under federal law. So we have this continuous tension between a great number, a majority at this point of states have legalized marijuana, at least for medical use. And now we have 10 states and D.C. who have legal adult use programs and a number of other states who are racing at a breakneck pace towards adult use legalization as well. And so for folks like myself who have um, a professional license, 
we have to be very careful. And this is one of the main reasons it made so much sense to aggregate all of our cannabis work into one place and put somebody in a position of being responsible for it. Um, we as attorneys may advise clients um, and in that advise category, we are allowed to tell people what the laws are, what they say, what they mean, um, what types of things are compliant with the law and what types of things uh, violate the law and what the consequences for violating the law are. And we are required in doing that to tell people that marijuana is illegal under federal law and what the penalties under federal law are for trafficking in an illegal substance. In New York, we're also as attorneys allowed to assist. And so what that means for attorneys is that we can do things like help clients put together an application for a license. Or if you are buying another company, we can help with the transaction document. Or if you are trying to lease some real estate, we can uh, draw up the lease. Where we always have to stop is at business advice. And that's sort of a, an uncomfortable line because part of where attorneys add a lot of value to their clients and, and something that most clients expect from their attorneys is not only to be a lawyer, but to be a counselor. And that that necessarily, in most cases, involves some degree of business advice. And it's something that comes pretty naturally to most lawyers. And when you do that in the cannabis space, um, that is criminal facilitation of uh, drug trafficking. And not that it's different for lawyers in that we're, we would be doing that when everybody else who might be participating in the cannabis industry isn't, because they are. Uh, we just happen to have licenses where we stand up in front of, you know, a, a justice and say, I'm going to uphold the laws of, of um, you know, the state of New York. And now we're, we're talking about committing crimes. And so from an ethical perspective as an attorney, it's we have to be very careful. And so people who are unfamiliar with cannabis run the risk of getting cavalier um, on that type of issue, and they don't really understand where that line is and why it's so important. And so that's one of the reasons that we moved towards this cannabis practice model and why the, the firm felt so strongly about setting it up the way we did. Was there any trepidation from the firm just because of the stories of what happened in California with some law firms and lawyers that were involved with certain companies? And, and I know you were kind of touching upon that a second ago, but uh, was there any trepidation at all about starting this? 
Yeah, so that's that's also a good question. So I did have some internal pushback for a fair period of time after we started the cannabis group. Luckily, uh, we have quite uh, a business-minded management committee, and they are open-minded, and they do the research, and they listen to... um, subject matter experts. And so we had a lot of buy-in from the top level. For people who did not take the time to understand the landscape, I did get I did get some pushback about well, why why are we turning lawyers into criminals? But the more common pushback I got was, well, I have I represent uh, behavioral health providers, and they're going to be very mad that we have a cannabis practice. And that honestly was my biggest hurdle. And to that, I mean, my response has always been, listen, we're not advocating for legalization. Um, Our role is to respond to changes in the law because that's what lawyers do. And we take no position, but this is an important legal need. And boy, if anyone ever needed legal help, it's in an area as complicated as this. And for those behavioral health clients, you don't see them up in arms and taking their business elsewhere if their lawyer, if their law firm represents a winery, for example, because some people become alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, all right, I got to go. What year did you start researching this and, and getting into the cannabis side? Because you were ahead of oh, the game man. in New York, so, obviously. Yeah, I sort of like tripped into this um, before I moved over to Barkley Damon, and it, it flowed from uh, my, my environmental related work. And gosh, that must have been in 2013. 2012, 2013. And that was with Barclay Damon at the time? uh, That was with the the Gilberti Law Firm at the time. So before we were acquired by Barclay Damon. Okay, so you started your cannabis research prior to working for Barclay Damon. Yeah. Yes, and it wasn't wasn't research just because I was interested in this as a legal issue. It was was because we, we represented... Uh, a, a downstate client um, for years. So a multi-generational family company in the construction aggregates business who the managing partner um, did quite a bit of regulatory work for, including permitting and licensing and um, sometimes fighting with the state over regulations that didn't work uh, and developed a big body of law around environmental regulation and um, later on uh, mining. And uh, in doing that work, stayed with this particular family company for 40 years and was very successful and went from the grandfather to the father to now the father who's running the company today. And one day, the managing partner of my old firm got a phone call from um, that that 
man's wife and his daughters who mm-hmm. said, Billy, you've done a great job for our dad and you did it for our grandfather. And we, we enjoy that business, but our brothers are going to kind of do that. We'd like to do marijuana. Ooh. And Bill laughed because, you know, you'd have to know this family to fully appreciate it. But Uh the father is like, like Captain Boy Scout America. (laughs) And the thought of him having family members who would contemplate any flavor of anything that could ever be construed as something illegal is just mind blowing. (laughs) So... The, the managing partner like kind of laughed at them and said, "Oh, go talk to Sarah Payne." And so I took the call, and I'm, I'm you know, thrilled I did. And I, I listened to them, heard them out, and here's the backstory. So the the mom and, and the daughters told me about some family situations and. The maternal grandmother had been living with this family for a number of years while the children were teenagers, and grandma had been diagnosed with ALS. And grandma had been a very active uh, member of these kids' lives uh, while they were young. And because she was living with them, the children watched her deteriorate after her ALS diagnosis to the point that, you know, she couldn't take care of herself and then eventually couldn't swallow. And, you know, the family is, you know, fairly, fairly well off and took her to the best doctors and got multiple opinions from very, very talented medical providers and eventually had a doctor more or less say to them, we can sort of treat her pain with a bunch of narcotics, but all of these drugs we're giving her are kind of like poisoning her system effectively. And, you know, she can't really communicate with you, but they're making her groggy and dopey and they're not really taking care of her pain and they may be making you feel better because you're not hearing her, um, you know, wince or groan or whatever, but she's still uncomfortable and there's really nothing else we can do. And that was not satisfactory for this family, but there were no other options. And that doctor at recommended, why don't you try marijuana? And the family sort of drew a line in the sand and said, you know what? Sounds great. We've heard good things, but it's illegal and we can't do that. So the same story of many families is no different than most other families. That's right. Around the same time, one of the daughters um, needed to have some hip surgery and this young lady is a remarkably talented girl, um, very gifted academically, very gifted athletically, competed in Miss America pageants, um, just all around uh, a high-performing, incredibly intelligent um, young lady with a lot of promise. 
uh, embarking on her college career but needs hip surgery. Her hip surgery failed. And yada, 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 she spent her college years in a wheelchair, staying awake for class on Adderall and treating her pain with Percocet. Because that was the best conventional pharmaceuticals could do for her. And so, again, that was not acceptable to this family. So she went out to Colorado and she tried medical marijuana somewhere where it was legal. And she said that she had more relief from using medical marijuana to treat her uh, failed surgery related pain than from all of her narcotic pain medication without having the side effects. So the family came home from that trip feeling and and having, you know, watched the the grandmother suffer so with ALS, feeling very, very strongly that, you know, they might have had the resources to go to Colorado and try medical marijuana, but not everybody does, and that they wanted to make that type of therapy more available to more people and especially people in their home state. And so they got busy and they went and talked to legislators up and down and back and forth in Albany. And by George, you know, a a fairly short time later, we got the Compassionate Care Act passed. And today they are one of the original five registered organizations in our medical marijuana program and the only registered organization who is comprised of the ownership uh, as as it was disclosed at the time of application, and they're the only family-owned company. I wish I could get their products in Rochester, New York right now because I just want to support a family that actually went into it with the right reasons. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't about, it was about actually healing people. That's right. And they, to this day, are incredibly passionate about the program for that reason because chronic pain particularly and end-of-life care touched their family very, very directly in very painful ways. And and they thought that our system of health care failed their family and that we can do better. And so they have set out to do better. So do you personally believe in the story or or do you look at it just as the attorney saying, okay, I want to support your vision? Uh, You know, I've spent enough time with these folks that I really believe them. Um, I have sat with the parents of epileptic children um, in legislators' offices, and I have heard them say, Uh, We used to be New Yorkers, and we have moved to Colorado because we had a child with intractable epilepsy, and there was no treatment available. And my child had, you know, 200 seizures a day, and every time my child has a seizure, a piece of their brain dies. And when we moved to Colorado and my, my child was able to start cannabis therapy, we noticed an almost immediate improvement, and now my child maybe has a few seizures a week. 
They go to school. They have friends. They play soccer. And I just can't tell you how much better quality of life uh, my child now has because this therapy is available to them. So I, I do think that there are some very, very meaningful medicinal qualities of the cannabis plant. Unfortunately, because of federal legality, we have not been able to study them enough or robustly enough to fully understand what those benefits are or how they work. And I, I think that's problematic. And, and that's another area as a society we just need to do better. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And I believe there's probably going to be more funding heading that way. Uh, I mean, we just learned recently that they're probably going to start putting some kind of grants out there for these companies, for the CBD companies. So it looks like there's going to be maybe some more government funding put into this. Um, are you seeing that out of, out of New York State as well within the health department? So the proposed legislation now contemplates an entire class of licenses in the marijuana program uh, for research. Now, we don't yet have the regulations. We just sort of have the skeletal proposed legislation. And so it's, it's sort of unclear how that will all shake out. But I think it's promising that the state recognizes how important research is and we've opened that door. Yeah. Amen. And it happened in my life. Are you happy with the progress in the state from 2014 to now? Yikes. Um, I would love to say yes. Um, Let's think realistically first. I mean, how many states right now are, are legal with THC? 10? Are we at 10 or 11? So uh, legal of THC. So it depends on how you want to use it. So for medical, well, like it's 34 plus DC and for adult use, we're at 10 plus DC. Um, I'm happy with the state in that I think what they did really well was roll the program out slowly at first so they didn't lose control of it. I think what we haven't done well is make it accessible and affordable enough to enough people. And because there is so much promise in this therapy, I think accessibility and affordability is, is really a critical issue. And we rolled the program out without thinking about research. And to me, I sort of feel like research is the first thing. Yeah, I mean, because the program's kind of painted out as a researcher, or the, and the previous licenses kind of had the word research kind of intertwined in it. Or Am I wrong with that? Or, I mean, weren't they kind of intending that people uh, would do yeah, that? The initial, the initial medical... Uh, program did not contemplate any research. What about the hemp side? Um, so on the industrial hemp side, it was definitely based as research, but as agricultural research. 
And what the state did not anticipate, and frankly, really, the federal government didn't anticipate, is that from industrial hemp, you cannot get THC or the the cannabinoid that produces an intoxicating effect, but you can get CBD, a cannabinoid that does not produce an intoxicating effect, but that does have fairly significant medicinal properties. And so when we got a hemp law at the federal level, and then states started to roll out hemp laws like New York did, nobody really anticipated that hemp would become synonymous with CBD really quickly, and we would have this whole new industry. And so, yes, our hemp program is hooked the hook is is research but it's not medical research it's it's agricultural research i got you so it wasn't for for the health benefits it was for agriculturally uh, for farmers more for the farmer side right. right or for the farmers more how can we use the hemp plant can we replace you know products that maybe we use single-use plastic for now? What can we do with the fibers? Can we use the seeds and animal seeds? Stuff like that. Yeah. So in general, it sounds like this, the state can be blamed for some of it, but some of it's their naivety. It's naivety, I guess, if I say it right. And then some of it probably is they were hoping companies were going to move ahead faster than they did because, for instance, what, 10 companies have licenses for the medical side. Only five are producing products. The state was hoping all 10 would have been, right, to create a more competitive well, market? So the, the only only five were initially licensed. Mm-hmm. And then once, once the program had been operating for a little bit, the state awarded five more licenses. And that was kind of controversial because the pa- patients are – are really limited. So you can't just say, I think I'd benefit from cannabis therapy. Um, You have to have one of a very short list of medical conditions that has to be verified by a doctor. And it can't just be any doctor. It has to be a doctor registered by the state. And you have to go see that doctor and they have to certify you have that condition. And then they have to recommend that you use medical marijuana. And then you have to register with the state. And then you have to go to a dispensary and you have to be counseled by the dispensary. And then you have to buy the medical marijuana and you have to pay for it out of pocket because insurance doesn't cover it. And most patients who use medical marijuana spend between $300 and over $1,000 a month um, to to get their medicine. And so that's not really a sustainable cost for a lot of folks. And so... Um, you know, you start with a very small patient pool because you've restricted it to a very small number of conditions. And then you make it hard to get certified uh, to legally participate in the program. And then the cost structure is, is very burdensome for a vast majority of folks. And you have an industry that is incredibly small. And so um, I think, you know, probably 10 companies is, is perhaps too many for the number of patients we have to serve. That's interesting. So 
Oh, man, I don't, uh, where to go next? There's so many different ways I want to go with this. So, so you're you're sort of happy with the state. What do you think's gonna? How does the next twelve months look in the state, in your opinion? Uh, it's it's going to be a mess, Brian. So I, I think I, I, what we're on track for right now is is we're on track to see uh, adult use legalization, and and that's going to be a, a pretty complex process. It's going to involve creating a new regulating body. And in that new regulating body, we, in, or, in order to have any type of meaningful oversight over the cannabis industry, it's going to be important to put all cannabis in the same place and, and make cannabis sort of subject to the same types of rules, no matter what piece of the industry you're operating in. So, Right now, the Department of Health regulates medical marijuana, and and it does that within the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement. And the Department of Agriculture and Markets regulates industrial hemp, and adult use is illegal. This new legislation proposes a new Office of Cannabis Management as a new regulating body. That would be kind of under the umbrella of, of like the liquor authority and the alcohol and, and um, beverage law and that type of structure. Mm-hmm. And so we would see medical marijuana be regulated in that body. We would see industrial hemp um, that involves CBD that will get a new name. It will be called hemp cannabis be regulated in that body. And we would see adult use uh, marijuana be regulated in that body. And we are on track to see this happen in the budget. And that's going to go quickly. And it's going to be controversial. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to push it through. If it goes through, then, then we have to start with the prepare drafting regulations um, piece of it. And that's going to take some time. And once regulations are drafted, then there will be a licensing process and then uh, people will apply and then those applications will have to be evaluated and then licenses will be awarded and then people will, you know, try and get new businesses up and running. But in the background, there's going to be a lot of, of interest groups who are going to try and uh, have their voice heard. Um, right now, we have something called an opt-out provision that says, you know, there may be some places that don't want to have cannabis businesses, and we're going to allow them to say, no thanks, not here. What a lot of people in local governments don't like about this is that opt-out right now is structured at the county level. And so it will be counties who will be making the decision to opt out. And the only subdivision smaller than a county that will be able to have any input in participation will be uh, cities who have a population 
greater than 100,000. But what that means is towns and villages who maybe would want, who maybe they're very rural and their farmers would want to have a cultivation facility, for example, or a processing plant, um, but whose county opts out wouldn't be able to say, we really need jobs, we'd like to opt in. They would be precluded from doing that. Conversely, a county who says, oh, no way, we're not going to opt out, we want this business, uh, would put a town that says, nope, we absolutely don't want uh, adult use dispensaries here, they would not be able to opt out and ban those dispensaries in that town because their county did not opt out. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction among local level lawmakers uh, because we've, we have concentrated that opt out power at the county level. Um, so that's just one example of a group of people who's not very happy with the structure of this thing. And as unhappy as those people are, I understand why the state is, is has taken this position. And a really good reason why the state has taken that position is if you let every single government subdivision do their own thing, you get this really weird patchwork of conflicting positions across the state. And it, what happens and what's happened in other states is you get concentrations of uh, uh, towns and villages who say, sure, you can have a, a cannabis business here. And then you get concentrations of towns and villages who say, absolutely no way. So you have high concentrations in one area and then huge deserts in another. And that does things like fuel the black market. Um, and we don't want to see that. We need to, if we're going to move forward with adult use, we need to focus on normalizing the industry and making sure the business infrastructure and the regulatory environment is conducive to as um, ordinary business function as we can get in this weird world of legal under state law, but illegal under federal law. And, and you broached on something that I want to, that I want to touch on next is education we, and it's communication education. And one of the things that you, one of your affiliations is that you're a part of the New York state bar association committee on cannabis law. So, so I know a piece of that for you is educating the bar association across the state on, on some of these things. So, so what, what are you finding is uh, being a leader, leader in that way? Um, tell me some things uh, that, that would interest people of your role in that way. Uh, you know, I think generally there's this, this um, among people who aren't really connected with the cannabis industry, um, there's this conception of it like 1970s flower children in California, like smoking joints. And that could not be further from the truth um, when it comes to the modern cannabis industry. One, we're talking about very, very sophisticated businesses 
They're highly regulated. They're making very highly regulated products that they are responsible to track from a seed through the final sale at every single step of the process. And that in and of itself is not an easy thing to do. They are also prevented from using conventional banking services because banks typically don't want to take their business because banks are subject to anti-money laundering laws. And uh, that's a federal law. And because cannabis is illegal under federal law, uh, even if you're doing it legally in the state, a bank subject to federal law is going to be violating that federal law to take your business in the state. And so, you know, banking is very hard for cannabis companies, which means borrowing is nearly impossible for cannabis companies. Similarly, insurance is very difficult for cannabis companies. Taxes is another really big problem. Cannabis companies are not allowed to take business deductions, and that results in a really high effective income tax rate. So marijuana companies pay an income tax rate of 72 to 76% because they can't deduct business expenses. That's really crushing. And states often legalize adult use because they want to do like a money grab, right? They want extra tax revenue. That's kind of what we're set up to do here in New York. Mm -hmm. And what lawmakers don't realize is you're, one, not incentivizing people in the black market to come out of the darkness and into the licensed market, because why would you take the cash you're putting in your pocket and hand it to the government? And two, like, how on earth can anybody make any money in this? It doesn't make sense. So when the tax structure at the state level is such that, you know, we're looking at adding another 30% of a marijuana tax onto that federal income tax of, you know, 72 to 76%. For companies who can't borrow money, who have to do almost everything in cash, who can't get insurance, um, that's a really tough business environment. So what we see in states that have been money hungry and have, have been too aggressive with their tax structure is instead of the policy goal of having the existing marijuana come out of the black market and cartels and, you know, all the things that um, government people opposed to marijuana try and scare people with, uh, we actually see a huge uptick in black market activity because you decriminalize the stuff, right? There's no longer that law enforcement go to jail risk. But it's way too expensive to do it legally to make sense. So why not work in the black market? And we see that. We see it in California. We see it in Oregon. We see it in Washington. And it's a really big problem. 
here's to paint the picture for the people on the street, right? If you're just a soccer mom that wants to uh, smoke a couple joints during the week, five, 10 joints during the week to get you by whatever, some kind of CBD, uh, they would have to go get a medical card right now, do go to the medical dispensary, pay an excessive amount of money for that, or they can go to their buddy down the street, get a quarter, it'll last them two months for, for 50, 60 bucks. Right, that's that's the one side or the other, and, right? I mean, when it comes down to it. And Brian, that assumes that assumes that they have a qualifying medical condition that they'd be eligible to participate in our medical program. And that's the next thing I wanted to bring up: what qualifies for that right now? And hasn't it be, become uh, a little bit easier? Uh, it has become a little bit easier, but it's still some pretty bad stuff. So, Parkinson's, Huntington's, ALS, cancer. Um, MS, uh, IBS, um, AIDS, uh, a couple of other things. We did, we were able to add PTSD and chronic pain, and now about two thirds of all um, medical marijuana recommendations are for chronic pain. More recently, we have added any condition for which you could treat with an opioid and um, opioid addiction. Uh, And and the numbers around uh, using cannabis as an alternative to opioids and to uh, help in transitioning somebody off of opioids are really, really quite impressive. Um, And for people who are battling addiction to opioids, it is, uh, hopefully, um, a more uh, a safer alternative, and at least another option that they can talk with their providers about. So, on last week's episode, I had Ed Rosenthal, and he he was a writer for High Times for many years in in the industry, and and something he said that was very interesting to me that. It, it was he said basically he was a crime reporter in the 70s for high times because he was writing about people that were doing things illegally so so you as an attorney how do you feel about uh, how you've helped the industry in new york state because you've been at the forefront of it and you have been wonderful and we all should be blessing you right now um but how do you feel do you feel like it's just it was your job as an attorney or, or do you really have a good like inside feeling knowing you're helping people off the big picture Tough question for me. So uh, on the medical side, I have seen enough science in, in peer-reviewed journals and data from very, very uh, impressively credentialed doctors and anecdotal evidence from patients to say there's, there is something real about the medicinal benefits and I feel good about uh, being being a part of making something that improves the lives of people more available. Um, I, I, on on cannabis practice more generally, I think there's a couple of other very important social and policy issues that can't be overlooked in this conversation. And one of them is social justice and equity. And I, I think the you no one can deny at, at this point in time 
that as a result of the war on drugs, the number of particularly young men um, who are black and Hispanic have suffered much, much, much greater rates of um, arrest, prosecution, and incarceration than their white counterparts, and that that has had a devastating impact on those people individually, on their families, and on their communities. That's a very, very serious problem in our society, and it's something that we, I I think, have a moral responsibility to address as a society. You know, I'm not an elected office, so it's not for me to say whether or not legalizing cannabis is the way to do that. But um, I understand how our lawmakers would say that's some pretty low hanging fruit because we got a whole bunch of of um, black and Hispanic men in jail who have been in jail since they were youths for things that their white counterparts do at the same rate and our law enforcement community looks the other way. And that's, that's something we need to deal with as a society. And it, I feel good at, at least about being part of that conversation. Um, I also think that there's, we have this crushing, devastating problem with opioid addiction and overdose in our country. And I have, you know, because I do this all day, every day for more hours a day than I should admit, um, I have seen a lot of data. I've read a lot of papers and I, I am not a full-fledged supporter of the gateway theory. Um, the information that I have seen that I find most reliable, most compelling, and most supported by, by data that is um, verifiable is that if you're going to call a substance a gateway, that substance is alcohol. Uh, And that in terms of public safety, I uh, personally do, do not believe that cannabis is a materially greater danger either uh, today as, as somebody may use it or in the future because it will uh, using it today will cause them to use harder drugs down the road. Uh, I just, I think there's, there's some very flawed logic and flawed data underlying that gateway theory. And I, I think it's time to, reevaluate it in a common sense, data-driven, scientific way, not in a way 
that starts with, are you red or are you blue? And your answer is a litmus test for which party do you get invited to? And we need to start thinking about how we treat cannabis as a social issue in addition to a public health and safety issue. And I think when you balance the devastating impact the war on drugs has had on communities of color against what we're seeing in terms of of, um, highway safety, teen usage rates, and other things like that in states where there has been legalization, um, I'm just not convinced that cannabis is the devil. Uh, That's, you know, my personal opinion. I don't use cannabis. Honestly, I'm really not that interested in it. Uh, I'm interested in it because it's a legally very complex field, and I find it intellectually stimulating. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also don't drink, and I don't smoke. Uh, It's just not part of who I am. Um, We are very glad you took up this cause, Sarah. We are very glad you're on our side, and I'm so glad you brought up the social piece of it. Uh, because we do need to talk about there are going to be a lot of social benefits. Like I, I like to tell people, Sarah, when I meet Canadians, I like to tell them, I, I'm so happy for you, but not for the silly way most people say that to you. I say it because your healthcare system in my mind is going to improve and be a lot less strained eventually. And, and that's going to be a, a true side effect of, of the legalization of that country. Yeah, I mean, and it's look, Canada's a, a, an experiment right now because we don't really know what widespread legalization is going to look like twenty years from now. We don't know, uh, but I and and you know, look, who am I to say? I don't have those kinds of credentials, and I certainly don't have a crystal ball. But there's a whole lot of harm that comes from alcohol, and as a society, we still embrace that. Yeah, it's amazing. Maybe the prohibition actually was smart back in the day, huh? Uh, no, uh, who, who knows? Yeah. I, again, not for me to decide, but I, I think it's a very hypocritical position uh, for our lawmakers to take. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Sarah, you've been very generous with your time. You are so busy. Uh, I'll be listing off when you're not on all the places where people can see or hear you. Um, I just want to thank you. First of all, do you sleep ever? Um, not long and not well. When her and I did the project together, we were on a a daily phone call together and I don't know how she got the work done in between our phone calls with sleeping and having a family. I I, truly, you're an amazing woman, Sarah, and I'm truly glad to have known you and met you and and had you a part of our team. You're incredible. It was a great project. Love to be involved. Pleasure to speak with you this evening and happy to do it anytime. Yeah, I do. That's what I was going to say for everybody else. We will have Sarah again in the future so we can talk about her family, a little more of her background. She is based out of Syracuse, New York, so everybody knows uh, that's the um, division of her office that she works in. She went to the University of Syracuse, uh, Maxwell School of Citizenship as well, uh, as well as Lemoyne College and the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Uh, those where she has her degrees, just to let everybody know how smart this woman is, unbelievably. So thank you, Sarah, and be safe and uh, enjoy your family. Thanks, Brian. Have a good night. You too. Bye, hon.
So, Sarah Payne, now that she's off the phone and I'm staring into the abyss of snow, I want to give you guys a little bit more uh, to know why she is so smart. I did not give her full, oh, excuse me, uh, full introduction uh, based on everything, but uh, New York State Office of Attorney General, New York State Science Technology Law Center, um, Signature Stables, uh, Blue Highway Inc., uh, Barkley Damon LLP, just some of the places she has worked for. Um, she is part of the New York State Bar Association Committee on Cannabis Law. She is the New York State Bar Association and a member of the Onondaga County Bar Association. And she is a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I am so happy I got her on. The list of places that she has been uh, and her experience is amazing. She's been on local radio um, here as well as New York Law Journal. Um, she was the Onondaga County Bar Association reporter for Spark It Up um, uh, in August 2018. In January of 2019, uh, New York State Bar Association annual meeting, the general practice session, she gave the overview of cannab- cannabis legislation in New York and across the United States. Uh, she gave that presentation January 2019. Uh, she is incredible, smart woman, and uh, we were very lucky to have her on. So, so thank you, Sarah, once again for coming on with us. Let's not forget, everybody, that let's use cannabis sensibly. Let's use delivery methods that don't counteract the positive benefits of this plant. Yes, you heard that we had a project that went well. We will. I am learning quickly that CBD definitely works for you in when it's made properly and hopefully we'll be able to talk about products soon that we know for a fact do that but cbd thc please go out do your research validate my podcast validate what sarah is saying validate what mr rosenthal said last week society will definitely benefit from this and we cannot wait to see the side effects uh, as this rolls out but i guess within 12 months now this state will be one of the collective of fully legal. So hopefully we'll be, what, top 12 or top 13 in the country. I'll take top 13 in my lifetime. I can't complain about that. So please get off the couch. Take in that cannabis plant properly and have your adventures. Have a good day. We'll see you next week, everybody.